every day when I roll out of bed, no matter what my planner says or no matter what it is I'm going to go do that day, as a Christian, as somebody whose life is being shaped by the gospel, I have a purpose and a mission that is defined by the gospel. And that's what we're going to look at this morning. We're in Philippians chapter 1, starting in verse 27. We'll go down to chapter 2, verse 11 this morning. We've seen that the book of Philippians is a book written by the Apostle Paul to a church in the first century town of Philippi that was in northern Greece. The Apostle Paul had been there. He had started this church. He then left, and sometime later, he is writing them this letter. And in the process, he explains to this specific first century congregation some important things about being a gospel-shaped people in the midst of a community that largely was not following Jesus. But in the process of, of kind of listening in onto the Apostle Paul's conversation with them, we recognize this is God's conversation with his church at all times. And there are truths here for us. This morning's passage begins in verse 27, where the Apostle Paul says to them collectively, he's writing to a church full of people, much like us, he says, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Live, in other words, in a manner that is worthy of the gospel. When he says, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel, really kind of the, the connotation of what he wrote, this was originally written in the Greek language, uh, the, the connotation of that term was, was sort of like, um, as, as citizens of a country, you live as the citizens of the country uh, that you are from and that you represent. This metaphor probably had a special meaning because the ancient city of Philippi was uh, rare, not quite unique, but it was rare in that it was a Roman colony. Uh, the Roman Empire was in charge of most of the Mediterranean, and Philippi was in northern Greece, so it was part of the Roman Empire, uh, but it was in Greece, it wasn't in Italy, and, and most of the cities throughout the Roman Empire were ruled by Rome, but they still reflected in many ways the cultures uh, of the people who had founded those cities. Well, there were a few specific colonies where Roman citizens actually moved to these places, and Roman laws were in full force. Roman taxes not only were paid as they were all over the empire, but Roman culture held sway in a special way. It was an actual colony of Rome. Philippi was one of those cities. Well, so here they were in uh, northern Greece, but they were proud of the fact, uh, history tells us, that they were a Roman colony. They weren't just ruled by Rome, they were Romans themselves, purebloods, if you will. Many of them were actually Italians who had moved to Philippi as colonists. Uh, they lived as Roman citizens culturally. They spoke the language ethnically, the food they ate. They were proud to be Romans in the midst of a largely Greek culture. And so here the Apostle Paul sort of seizes on that image, and he's writing the church in Philippi, and he says, as much of the citizens of your town are sort of proud to be Romans in the midst of a Greek culture, that's an image for us as Christians. We as Christians should live, not as Romans in Greek culture, we should live as Christians in a non-Christian culture. Live in such a way that your manner of life is putting the gospel on display so that those around you can see what the gospel is like by how you and I live. That's the, that's the exhortation. That's the message this morning. That's the one point of the one-point sermon right there. Live in such a way that your life displays the gospel. That's our mission as Christians. Now, in the next uh, few verses, the Apostle Paul is going to unpack that in three ways. So I lied just a second ago. It's actually a three-point outline, not one. 
The three-point outline is simply this. What does it mean to live in such a way that puts the gospel on display? Well, the Apostle Paul says three things in this passage. First of all, stand together as a church. Stand together. Secondly, stand together in the face of opposition that will inevitably come to the gospel for the purpose, thirdly, of putting the character of Jesus on display. And that's what we're going to see this morning. Stand together in the face of opposition and display the character of Jesus. In giving the first century Philippian church this exhortation, we find a lot of our own mission and purpose in 20th century, 21st century America. Well, 20th century America too. But we're now in 21st century America in our own modern day of the kind of people that God has called us to be. Stand together, he says, verse 27, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Before we go any further, do you hear all the commonality language in that first exhortation? He says, I hope to come visit you guys again someday, but whether I make it or not, I want to know that you're doing the right thing and what's doing the right thing. What I want to hear of you is that you're standing together in one spirit of one mind, side by side, shoulder to shoulder, striving for the faith of the gospel of Jesus. The idea of one mind just just doesn't mean everybody thinks alike or that everybody in a church looks alike or, or acts alike. That's not the case at all. The idea is simply that everybody is focused on the same goal. We got the same master ambition. We got the same passion in life. We're all reaching and striving for the same thing. In much the same way that when a football team is out on the field, you got 11 players with very, very different positions. Some of them are like 6'6", 280, they're huge. And some of them are like 5'8", 175, they're little guys. They all do different things and they all have different skills. But if it's working right, they're all working together for one goal. We want to score touchdowns. That's the goal. We all work together. That's a little bit of the idea here. Side by side together, we are all working toward the goal of putting the gospel on display. What's being emphasized here is that when it comes to a church fulfilling its purpose, we're all in this together. Before we even get to what it means to put the gospel on display, the first thing we see is that whatever that means, it's not something you necessarily do completely in isolation all by yourself. This is the Bible's exhortation to a church, a whole group full of people like us, together put the gospel on display. There's no solo Lone Ranger Christianity pictured here, nor is there really anywhere else in the New Testament. A church being together in striving for the gospel is absolutely essential to the task. It's an essential core part of the mission. Uh, We've already alluded briefly in this morning's service to the fact that this is a big Sunday for us. Uh, Tonight, we will come back together as a church. We only do that a few times uh, a year where we come back together on a Sunday evening. Tonight is one of those Sunday evenings, and tonight is special because we're celebrating our church's 30th anniversary. Harvest Community Church was founded and started almost exactly 30 years ago, and we get to celebrate that tonight. One of the reasons I like the idea of doing that is that it reminds us that as current Harvest members... We are part of something that is much larger than us. And for the majority of us, something that's been going on a lot longer than we've been here, and we've been a part of it. We actually do still have a few founding members who are still part of our church, which is awesome. 
the vast majority of us, we recognize that God has been doing things in this church that were started before we got here. And, God willing, we'll probably continue on long after we're gone. You see, we're part of something bigger. We're part of something that is for God and involves other people. Our experiences as a church are part of a larger family. If you're a member of Harvest Now, that family needs you. And you need that family. We strive side by side together with one another. That is partly how we put the gospel on display. One of the things that we like to say, sort of a, an informal saying we have around Harvest, is that everything we do is relational. Everything we do is relational. That's one of our goals. That's one of our aspirations. I mentioned a few moments ago these new classes that we're offering on Wednesday nights. Even where there is a class where we're coming together to learn some specific things together, everything we do is relational. We build in opportunities to get to know one another, to forge new relationships, strengthen existing relationships. The focus isn't on unrelated individuals coming and sitting down and and zeroing in on content and then leaving, hopefully having gotten something out of it. The goal is the church family is coming together, so let's come together under the truths that we're learning and learn together how they shape our lives. If we're going to serve God faithfully in this world, where there is pain, where there's difficulty, where there is inevitable opposition to the gospel, we'll get there in just a second, we're going to need a church family. And so our heartbeat at Harvest is that we recognize when we open up the Bible, we don't see churches as things that you go to if you're a Christian. We see churches as things you're a part of if you're a Christian. Do you see the difference? you see the difference? We would ultimately hope that even though our language often says, well, what church do you go to? I go to Harvest, or I go to Calvary, or I go to Sunrise. In many ways, we would hope that actually in our hearts, we understand that that's more than just the place I happen to choose to attend on a Sunday. If I'm a Christian, God wants me to become part of a church, to connect deeply with the people there, and shoulder to shoulder, live out our faith together. This exhortation is to a group of people. How do we put the gospel on display? First of all, we do it with one another. I want to encourage you, if you're not already, to join a community life group. Uh, we have sign-ups after the service out in our atrium this morning. Or come check out uh, the classes that will be here on Wednesdays. There are so many ways to pursue relationships. If you're a Christian and this is your church home, get involved with relationships. Put the gospel on display. How? First of all, stand together. But the passage then goes on. Stand together, he says, in the face of opposition. Being a little ahead of myself there. In the face of opposition. Uh, Continuing on from verse 27 to verse 28. He says, stand side by side for the faith of the gospel and not frightened in anything by your opponents. There's specific people, he says, are in opposition to what the local church in Philippi was trying to do, which is to display the gospel. He says, this is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation, and that comes from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had in the past, and that you now hear that I'm still having. What's the Apostle Paul saying here to this church? What is this business about opposition? The Apostle Paul is saying that opposition to the gospel is to be expected in all cultures at all times. That's just part and parcel of the deal. 
Jesus himself was opposed by the world when he was in it, and so we who follow him should expect to be opposed by the world if we're actually following him. That's what Jesus himself said. The Apostle Paul isn't making this up on his own. Uh, The night before he was crucified, Jesus said to his disciples, John chapter 15, verses 18 and 19, if the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. He says to his guys, if you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, since I chose you out of the world, that's why the world hates you. Jesus tells his guys, expect that you're not going to be welcomed with open arms when you come in my name. And the fact that he said that the night before he was executed as a state criminal by the Roman Empire puts a particular power in these words. He was opposed. And he tells his followers, if you're following me, you too will be opposed. Now, why would, why would the world, why would people who are not Christians be hostile to the gospel? I mean, it's one thing to say that some people might not be interested in the gospel or they, they're not, they don't want to follow it, but that's not what Jesus is talking about. He's talking about outright, direct opposition. Why would that be the case? And the reason it's the case, Jesus uh, alludes to it there, he says it's because you're not of the world. I called you out of the world. You see, this goes back to what we taught a couple of Sundays ago. When the gospel impacts your life, when you become a Christian, it fundamentally alters your identity as a person. You are no longer who you were. Your worth and your value are now based on something totally different. In other words, you live out a completely different worldview. Your whole idea of what is true and what is right and what makes life worth living completely changes and you now have this new gospel-shaped view of life that is contradictory to the view of life that is often dominant in any given culture. The gospel will contradict every culture somewhere. It contradicts different cultures at different points, but it will contradict every culture somewhere. And so as gospel people, we end up standing for a whole way of life that is different than the way of life that is dominant in our community. And therefore, it is in opposition to it. It is a threat to it, and people don't respond kindly to their whole way of life being brought into question. Jesus says, that's what got me killed, because I'm coming and telling everybody you're sinners. People don't like to hear that. This is from John chapter 15, one, verse, uh, one chapter earlier, Jesus had said in John 14, 6, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father, no one gets to heaven, except through me. It's very clear, it's very unambiguous. There's not a whole lot of debate among theologians about what Jesus really meant there. It's pretty obvious, right? There is a problem every human being has it it's called sin that keeps you from heaven god has given one and one and only and only one solution to that problem and that solution is me so if you want to get to heaven you got to come through me well in our enlightened age in our multicultural age that strikes us often as at minimum a very narrow-minded and myopic view it may be much worse a very arrogant condescending and we might even say today hateful view. Who are you to say Jesus is the only way? Well, I'm nobody. I didn't say it. Jesus said it. But I am repeating it, and I stand for it, and I believe it. Well, that is an offensive thing to say. You can see where opposition comes from. You see, it's not just a, the gospel is not just a neutral thing. 
So Jesus had told us that we should expect opposition. The Apostle Paul picks up on that, but he also had personal experience with it. He had personal experience with opposition. He's referring here at the end of verse 30. He says, I want to I hear that you are engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and that you hear now I am still having. So the Apostle Paul is saying, I was, had gospel conflict in the past and I'm experiencing gospel conflict right now. These are very specific historical events of opposition that he faced from the larger culture around him when he first preached the gospel in the city of Philippi. Many of the members in the church were around at that time. They saw what happened when Paul first showed up and started preaching the gospel in Philippi, probably several years prior to this letter being written. Uh, The people in the city of Philippi weren't just neutral. Oh, here comes this guy, Paul. He's preaching some new religion. Whatever, I either accept it or I don't, but who cares? I'm just moving on. It wasn't a neutral reaction. There was outright hostility. The New Testament book of Acts in chapter 16 records the scene. The apostle Paul shows up, And he's running around, he starts preaching the gospel for several days, some people become Christians, they start a church together. Things seem to be going fairly well. Eventually he runs into a young girl, she was a slave, which was legal in the Roman Empire at that time, she was owned by other people, she was also possessed by a demon, so this young girl had some serious problems, and this demon would give through this girl uh, some insights that were beyond what humans would know because he was part of the spiritual realm, and so essentially her slave owners would uh, hire her out. They would make all kinds of money uh, using her as a fortune teller. Come pay us a bunch of money and our demon-possessed slave will give you some insight about life, and they made a killing financially on this demon that was in their slave girl. Well, the demon sees the apostle Paul preaching the gospel and it starts hounding him. The girl is following him around for days, mocking him and mocking the gospel. He's pretty patient with it, hoping she'll go away. She doesn't go away. So finally, he turns around and he casts the demon out of the girl. In the name of Jesus, come out of her. The demon comes out. Good for the girl. Bad financially for her owners. They just saw their hope of profit evaporate into thin air because of this guy who's preaching the gospel. And so they incite the authorities against the Apostle Paul and his companions by making all sorts of false accusations against them. They arrest Paul for breaking some law or other. It doesn't really matter what charges they ginned up because it was all a sham, but they did it anyway. So they legally uh, arrested him even though it was a total breach of justice. They beat these guys with rods, which was legal punishment at that time, and they throw them in prison. That's what he got for preaching the gospel. Now, some of you know the rest of the story. That night, middle of the night, an earthquake opens the cell doors, and the jailer, seeing all the cell doors open, is about to commit suicide because it's his job to keep all the prisoners in there, and he sees open doors, he's assumed they've escaped, The Apostle Paul says, no, 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 don't commit suicide, we're all still here. And the guy says, you are? He's so shocked at what's happened, he realizes this is all supernatural. He says, what must I do to be saved? Paul preaches the gospel to him, and that jailer and his entire family repent, they become Christians. Paul is eventually released. So this is the scene the Apostle Paul's referring to. He says, you guys saw what it was like for me when I first showed up in your town. Friends, when he's writing this letter, the jailer, the Philippian jailer, and his family are probably still members of the church that are reading this letter. So when he says, you guys know there's opposition, he's going, oh yeah, I remember that. We were there. We saw it. There's opposition that the gospel provokes. Now that was then. 
this is now. We live in a much more uh, civilized uh, age where people's rights are much more respected. Is there opposition of this kind to the gospel in our community? Sure. The details are different, but there's still opposition to the gospel of Christ. It's very easy for religious people to really be suspicious of non-religious people and question their motives, you know, because the other guy always looks a little scary to us. But you know what? It's also easy for non-religious people today to look at religious people and be really sort of leery of them and their motives. And this is becoming more and more mainstream. Here's just one example. Uh, two weeks ago, I read an article from the Washington Times that reported on a... Um, a, a report that came out from the U.S. Commission on Civil Rights. They released a lengthy report that claimed, among other things, quote, the phrases religious liberty and religious freedom will stand for nothing except hypocrisy so long as they remain code words for discrimination, intolerance, racism, sexism, homophobia, Islamophobia, Christian supremacy or any other form of intolerance, end quote. Plain English, you know what's being said there? According to this report, Christians who want the freedom to live in a manner that's consistent with the Bible's teachings are actually oftentimes pretty awful people deep down inside. I mean, we apparently, as Christians, have code words that are really pretty poorly uh, disguised attempts to cover up the real meanness and bigotry and hatefulness that exists in our hearts because we're religious people, uh, bigotry that exists towards non-religious people. Is there opposition to the gospel? Sure. But let me say something, especially to those of us who are members of our church. I would imagine most of us here would identify ourselves as Christians, probably not all of us, which is fantastic. But I specifically want to talk for a moment to those of us who call ourselves Christians, and especially those who are part of Harvest Community Church. Before we rush to get defensive at the U.S. Human Rights, uh, Civil Rights Commission, who basically just called us all bigoted, hateful people, I don't know what your initial response to that is, but mine is... You know, I, I feel unjustly accused of something that I don't think applies to myself. But before blood starts boiling, it's probably worth stepping back and realizing that in a world that is characterized by homeland security, international threat levels, and Islamic terrorism, many people in our society are starting to believe that the more seriously a person takes his or her religion, the more dangerous that person is likely to become. Of course, not everybody thinks that way that clearly, but that kind of idea is becoming more and more mainstream. It's the fanatics you have to watch out for. It's the people who actually believe their religious books that end up posing a threat. And so while we would say we don't disagree, we should probably recognize that from another person's perspective, that idea may sound more believable than it does to us at first. Now that leads us to a big question. Does the gospel make people hateful towards others? Let's treat it as what I think it is, a legitimate question for a moment. Does the gospel of Jesus, if you really believe it, 
result in you being bigoted and hateful toward other people. I mean, you might get that impression from reading these verses if you're not careful. Uh, All this talk about banding together as a church in the face of opposition. Sounds like we're a football team at halftime, right? We're down by seven points, men. We're getting beat around the edge. Gather together. Come on, let's go. Let's get those guys. Hit them hard. If they get up, hit them again. We're going to beat these guys. We're going to win. Yeah, right? It's all go get them kind of language. At least that's kind of how it sounds at first. But I believe the answer to this question is no. The gospel doesn't actually make us hateful toward other people because of the nature of the rally cry. The rally cry here isn't band together in the face of opposition to go get those guys. The rally cry here is very different. Band together in the face of opposition to testify to real life. So this is our third point this morning. Hold together in the face of opposition to put the character of Jesus on display. Look at what verse 28 says. We've kind of blown by that. I want to go back to it. He says, don't be frightened. Now that you're banding together to the church, he says, don't be frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. You know what he's saying there? What he's saying there is that when a church responds to uh, hostility toward the gospel from people who are outside the church with grace and with equanimity and yet still holding fast to the gospel no matter how much we have to pay in order to do so, our willingness to suffer injustice with grace shows that our real hope is not in this world, it's in the next you see the difference? This isn't rally together to go beat those guys. This is rally together so that you hold fast no matter what the world does to you, no matter what price they extract. You pay the price. And but your willingness to pay the price shows you that there's nothing in this world you can take from me that's of ultimate value. I have the ultimate value. I have eternal life. And so he calls us to willingly embrace the kind of injustice that Jesus faced He says, for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. It has been granted to you. That is your part and parcel as a Christian. Not only experience the life he experienced, but experience the injustice that he experienced as well. Think of it, the first century Philippian context, when Paul first came to Philippi. He took away the slave owners, the guys that owned the, the slave girl with the demon. He took away their source of income. And they went ballistic they went ballistic they went so ballistic that they worked up the authorities and they manufactured charges and they got these guys beaten and thrown in jail they were going after them and you know what their very aggression proved something the apostle paul took away from them the most important thing in their lives their money if you take my money away i'm gonna go ballistic But do you remember what Paul and Silas and his other buddies were doing? Those of you that are familiar with Acts chapter 16, that night when the earthquake blew all the doors open. You know what they were, you remember what they were doing right before that? I'm hearing it. Say loud. Singing. Yeah. They were singing. These guys had just been unjustly arrested, falsely accused, beaten by the authorities, thrown in jail, a total abrogation of justice. And here they are singing reminding themselves of the life they have in Christ. 
They weren't railing. They weren't threatening. They weren't looking for a way to get back or kill people. They were singing. And the fact that they were singing, their lack of fear, showed that while freedom and justice were important to them, they weren't ultimate. They weren't ultimate. No, this is no rally cry to go fight those who oppose the gospel. It's a rally cry to show the greatness of the gospel by our willingness to suffer injustice for it with grace. Friends, you can't do that alone. (laughs) You need brothers and sisters standing with you when injustice is being done and you hold on to the gospel with equanimity and grace. This is not a call for battle. This is a call to love. Put the character of Jesus on display. Chapter 2, verses uh, 1 through 11 is a very familiar passage to many of us. He says, you know what, I want you to follow my example. He tells the Philippian church, you saw me suffer, you hear that I'm still suffering, follow my example, but you know who your ultimate example is? Your ultimate example is Jesus Christ himself. It's Jesus Christ himself. Chapter 2 starts, he says, if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love or participation in the Spirit, he means the Spirit that, that he's following as he suffers, if there's any affection and sympathy that you have for me, complete my joy by being of the same mind. Think the same way I do. Follow my example. Having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. You see, the Apostle Paul was in jail again when he wrote this letter of Philippians. Quite frankly, it's sort of interesting. We're not 100% sure which imprisonment it was from which he wrote the letter to the Philippians. There's some good educated guesses out there. But the Apostle Paul was in jail so many times for the sake of the gospel, we're not even 100% sure which time it was that he wrote this letter. But he had been jailed years before in Philippi. He had been released, and now here he is years later, jailed again for the gospel, and he's writing this letter and saying, this is how it goes, guys. This is how it goes. So participate and endure injustice with grace just as you see I am doing. Verses 3 and 4 are not the words of combat or aggression. They're words of love. He says, do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look out not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Why? Why? Because this is who Jesus is. This is who Jesus is. In the face of opposition, we serve others because that's what our Lord and Savior did. That's what Jesus himself did. He says, have this mindset, think of it this way, amongst yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Though he was in the form of God, he did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, taking on the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men. Friends, let's sit back and remind ourselves what the gospel is all about for just a moment. God tells us every human being on the planet, no exceptions, is sinful. Our hearts are bent to rebel against God and throw him off of the throne of our own lives at the very least and be our own God for our own selves. We follow our own rules. We make our own choices. We don't want to listen to God. We have made ourselves, the Bible says, his enemies. And so this just and holy God, we stand before him completely condemned and he is just to condemn us. But you know what the interesting thing is? God doesn't say to us, oh, you want to make an enemy out of me? Bad call. I'm bigger than you. I'm stronger than you. You want to be my enemy? We're going to see how that goes. And I'm just going to squish you like a bug. Which, by the way, he could have. 
And the Bible makes it pretty clear he would have been totally just to have done so. But that's not the character of God. What does he do instead? He says, I'm going to save them from their sinfulness. And the only way to do that is for me myself to endure incredible suffering. So here's what I'm going to do. This brings us back to Philippians 2. He says, I'm going to leave the throne room of heaven. The Son of God does not consider his equality with God the Father something to be grasped. That is something to be held on to. Even though it was totally and rightfully his, he says, I'm willing to sacrifice and give up so that others may have life. He is born as a finite human being. The infinite becomes finite. God becomes man. It's almost unthinkable, but it's not over yet. It's not over yet. Verse 8, and being found in human form, he humbled himself even more by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. An incredibly painful, humiliating, and excruciating way to die. Jesus allowed himself to be executed as a criminal, an enemy of the state. He was made the victim of a massive abuse of power. And he willingly accepted that injustice so you and I could find life. Because it's through his sacrifice that our sins are paid. Friends, here's the bottom line. Jesus didn't come to win a battle against sinners. Jesus came to win the war against sin. And there's all the difference in the world. He didn't come to win a battle against sinners. He came to win the war against sin. And he sends you and I as his followers out on the same mission. Last couple of verses conclude by saying that God has exalted Jesus again. He is uh, seen to be supreme because of his willingness to serve us by sacrificing what was rightly his so that you and I could gain eternal life. So let's pull all of this together. How does the gospel shape our mission as a church? 21st century, Hillsborough, Beaverton, West Portland. What is our mission? The gospel completely changes it. We are called to come together, to stand together as a family in the face of the opposition that exists in our culture, whatever form that may take, not as combatants, but as people who willingly pay the price to follow Jesus because we put the gospel on display when we serve like he served and when we love like he loved and when we sacrifice for truth like he sacrificed for truth. There are so many ways that this can be worked out. How do we become a people who are, who are bent and oriented to serve instead of live for ourselves, which is more of the common thing? How does our whole life get oriented towards service? You can certainly serve within the context of our church, which is actually not a new message for our congregation. One of the fun things about celebrating 30 years of this church's history is that we are a serving church. Uh, every Sunday, and this has been true for, for years, for decades around here, dozens and dozens of people are invested in making ministry happen, and they're doing it on a volunteer basis. Even tonight, tremendous time and energy has gone into pulling off a really cool celebration. People are willing to step up and do that. Right now, we have an opportunity to continue to serve as we have come together in one service 
and we are launching a new Wednesday uh, gathering for all of our church family. That also means that on Sunday mornings, right now even as I speak in our north wing just over here, we have dozens of children, our children, who are coming together under a brand new curriculum, the Gospel Project curriculum. So excited about it. It's a much more focused and deliberate attempt to teach children the Bible than we've ever undertaken at Harvest, to express the love of God and teach these children who God is. And we could use some more people who are willing to miss our worship service once a month to continue to love our kids. Now, you can do that out of guilt or obligation, or you can do it because you have a heart to serve. Do you know, volunteering in church is not the only way you serve, even though we talk about it that way sometimes. There's Christian lingo, you know. I'm sure you all know that. Just like sometimes we say worship when we really mean music, right? (laughs) Music is a very good form of worship, but there are other ways to worship. Well, oftentimes in churches, when we say serve, what we really mean is volunteer. And volunteering is a great way to serve, as we just said, but the concept of serving, of giving, is much more than just volunteering on a Sunday morning. We serve people when we give up our me time to go to our community life group and spend time with them. When I would rather be by myself because I'm tired and it's been a long week, but I go anyway and I give an hour and a half or two hours of my time to my brothers and sisters in my community life group. It's giving. It's serving. We serve when we talk with other people about Jesus. At work. In our neighborhoods. Maybe I'm... I don't quite know how they'll respond. Maybe if I bring up Jesus, it'll be awkward. And, and I don't know about you, but I don't like feeling awkward or being the one who is the cause of somebody else feeling awkward. The truth of the matter is I just want people to think well of me and not think I'm weird. And sometimes taking the risk to talk about Jesus is a form of serving. I'm giving up my sense of not feeling weird in order that somebody else might at least have the opportunity to understand the love of God. So many hundreds of ways that we can serve. And you know, sometimes one of the best ways to serve is by allowing others to serve us. I was talking about this recently with a couple of people. Sometimes in my group of friends or in my circle of friends, I'm the one in crisis right now. It was my job loss or it was my family that's falling apart or it's my major accident or illness or something and I'm the one who needs a little more help right now than most other people. But if you've ever been in that position, you know it's so hard. You're like, I don't, I don't want my stuff to dominate all the time. So we're, we're kind of pushing people away as much as possible and saying, no, no, I, I want to be independent. I need a little bit of help but not too much. And sometimes we serve, we give up what we want to keep by giving up our sense of independence and saying, I do need the help. And I'm so grateful there's people willing to help me. Maybe by the grace of God someday I'll be through this and I can return the favor to others. But sometimes even being served is a way of being like Jesus by giving up what we would rather keep so that others may have an opportunity to know him better. Stand together in the face of opposition to put the gospel on display by loving and serving others. As we pull this all together and take a step back here, I want to wrap up kind of three Sundays. As we get ready to celebrate our 30th anniversary this this evening and look ahead to a new year of ministry as a church family, what we've seen is that the gospel anchors us in terms of our identity 
It anchors us in terms of our life's ambition. It anchors us in terms of our mission. But when we describe these things from the Bible on a Sunday morning, we don't describe them because any one of us has got that all figured out, myself foremost among them. We are letting the Bible tell us what we aspire to be as a church community. This is how the gospel is supposed to shape us, and hopefully every one of us can see as Christians and as members of this church, from speaking specifically to us, can see areas where we don't live up to that, where our identity or our ambition or our daily mission in life is not being shaped by the gospel, it's being shaped by other things. We don't lay these things out here because they're easy or because everybody's got this figured out. None of us have it figured out. We lay them out here so that God can tell us what he's trying to do in our lives. And the rest of our service is an opportunity for us to come together as a church family and express to him our openness to see his spirit at work in our lives. And we're going to do this in a very special way. We're about to receive communion, as you see the bread and the cup out this morning, which we do on a regular basis, twice a month at Harvest. And here's how I want us to approach communion. We call it communion because it represents us communing with or relating directly with God. In communion, we take a piece of bread that 